This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. Welcome to part one of our second episode, Teaching Under Quarantine. In this segment, guests Michael Matthews and Stephen Yanchar join us to discuss some of the challenges and opportunities related to moving our courses to online formats in response to the threat of coronavirus. Okay, so we're here today to talk about what so many of us are facing, this mandate to stop mid-semester from our online classes and figure out how to teach at a distance. And so we're having a conversation with um, a couple of guests. We have Michael Matthews. He's a PhD in instructional design. And for the past three years has been working as a designer making online classes. We also have Steve Yanchar, who's a faculty member in the Department of Instructional Psychology and is interested in instructional design practices and in learning and agency. So welcome to both of you. I'm glad to have you. And let's just start with um, a question. Now, a lot of the craft of teaching seems to happen extemporaneously in the classroom as we're side by side with our students. Do you think this might get lost in distant learning? I'll go first, uh, Brady, and, and thanks again for having us. It's a, a pleasure to be a part of the show. Um, a lot of the, the activities that we're used to to thinking about when we think of teaching, when we discuss teaching, are face-to-face classroom discussion. Uh, having built online courses for a few years now, uh, discussion is harder to do well online unless you get really resource-intensive using video conferencing technology. Um, but I've found that uh, a pivot to do meaningful activities in an online class ends up focusing more on the learning activities that the students do and the resulting artifacts that they produce as a part of their work. And there's already mechanisms in learning management systems to have conversations around artifacts. That's a lot of what a learning management system does. So it's part of the pivot, I think, is going to be carefully choosing when you want to have a, a good old discussion and what sorts of things you could move to a discussion around an artifact or, or something that the students produce as part of an assignment. Yeah, uh, I've since you asked the question, I just wanted to follow up with what Michael said a little bit. You know, th- thank you for having us on. And to me, this is one of the biggest um, challenges of trying to do these things digitally is somehow not let the natural energy and the capability, the like the structure for learning that occurs through face-to-face discussions get lost, and that can be very challenging. I think one of the you know, the, the, face to, the, uh, the digital technology in which we're all together can help a little bit, but it gets messy quick. And I think it's also, it can be a challenge to let people's voices be heard if some people aren't as assertive as others to make sure that they get a space in the digital conversation, you know? And so uh, I don't have all the answers to that question, but I think instruction needs to be a little bit, or, or at least, you know, course, um, like activities need to be, conducted with a little bit more care to helping make sure that people get a voice and opportunity. And sometimes the chat can help with that, the back channel, make sure that if there's someone who does need to get a, can't get a word in edgewise, can somehow um, be listened to or monitored or somehow so that you are responsive and sensitive to people in this way and try to make the best of it. You know, one of the, you know, one of the questions that I have about um, managing these kind of 
uh, digital conversation platforms is the question of participation. You know, I in the past I've done some um, online course discussion, and sometimes student participation is even lower than in classes. And I've noticed that a lot of instructors start to make it compulsory. Right? They like say you have to comment x number of times or everyone has to comment on this uh, post i don't know if, if any of you have thoughts about how to manage participation i know how to deal with classrooms where students don't participate in live discussions i, I have less experience with helping students participate in digital and asynchronous kind of form of discussion i can share an experience <clears throat> excuse me I can share an experience from a, a class that I taught. This was actually a face-to-face -face class that I taught, but I was borrowing my course design from the online course that had already been created. Um, the online class had one of these discussion boards that you just described, Josh, where everybody's required to you know, post and comment. And, and I, was, I was interested in exploring whether it would be possible to do any kind of an online discussion while there's also a face-to-face -face component to the class. Uh, so I, I left those discussion boards in because they were kind of serving a peer review purpose, but the students really, really resisted me on it. I was having a discussion with them at the beginning of class about how I wanted to structure the course and how we thought it should go. And they just, they just pushed back with everything they had. And I, it kind of turned into a, an interesting, not a philosophical question, but like I just started wondering like, how does anybody communicate by text anywhere? Like how are there support forums on websites? How, do, how does any of that work unless it's possible, right? My point to the students was, this is not a useless activity. People do this around the world. And they pushed back with, well, it's because, you know, support forums on websites, it's, where, it's because they really care. They really care about the subject. They have a problem they're bringing they want to get solved or they're nerds about some, you know, special hobby. They have really specialized knowledge about this area. And so the point was well taken. The students just didn't care enough uh, to participate in my discussions. And that was really eye-opening for me um, because when students are in a face-to-face -face class environment, they're already there. Their day is kind of booked out for them. They just have to show up. And that's, that's you know, existentially the hard work they have to do is show up. And once you're there, you can encourage them and entice them and invite them with your, your conversation and, and the verbal invitations you can give. But when a student's just by themselves with their computer, there's a billion other things they'd rather be doing and they're, they're more interested in those other things. So you really have to make it meaningful for the students to want to participate in such a conversation. The kinds of conversations that we usually have about, you know, post once, reply twice, uh, we can see right through that. We can see that it's just not meaningful. <laughs> and so what I've had to learn how to figure out is, coming up with a meaningful discussion, a conversation worth having, so important that students would even be willing to talk about it online without the face-to-face -face option. Well, what I've seen is that there are a lot of affordances in the classroom that I think naturally invite students to participate, even in kind of a minimal way that just aren't there with a, an online format. The fact that they're sitting next to somebody that, you know, I can ask an interesting question and I'm looking at them, you know, just the face-to-face -face encounter seems to matter. And so that, I mean, that seems to be one obstacle that we face is that 
every teacher has to make their students eat their vegetables to some degree. You know, they might not care entirely, but I think we're doubly challenged because this isn't what any of us signed up for. That we're, we're changing course part way. And so this question of do we, do we require participation, I think becomes all the more complicated. Yeah, I, I, I've seen, you know, when I've seen students participate in these kinds of online discussions, it's often been, I don't know, not necessarily part of the design of the course, it's been because so I, I remember one case, the students were doing a lot of um, work in class where they would be in groups and they would moved around between groups a lot. And so they kind of um, ended up building relationships with each other. And then when they, when they moved online, it was sort of like social networking. Like they were talking to each other, to the other group members. And so it was more like, it was more a relational thing than about content. I don't think they cared as much about the content. It was more like just talking to people that they knew in the class. Mm. And I saw, you know, that sort of worked. I mean, they weren't actually talking a lot about the content of the course that much, but they were talking. Um, and I've also seen, you know, where if, if you make the, some of the online interaction connected to how they perform in class, sometimes that can be motivating students, not in the sense of they get graded on whether they participate, but that the kinds of discussions that are being had are related to like, how do I do my assignment? You know, like how, how do, and that, that produces a lot of participation that's related to the course, but it's sort of, I think it's slightly aversive for students because they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Tell me how to, you know, get a good grade on this assignment, right? So it's not like classroom discussion. It's more like, teach me how to do the content of the course. And so Josh, are you saying that um, that becomes more problematic when you don't have the face-to-face -face encounters or the hallway conversations or office hours and so on? Yeah, I guess I don't know. I've never gone totally offline before. You know, I've been able to supplement, you know, combine in-class techniques, which I'm more comfortable with, with online techniques. I don't know. Yeah, I've never tried going all the way. Well, uh, one, one thing that I am aware of is that we have to be very mindful of our communication patterns in these kinds of online environments. And how are we going to try to reach out to students and allow them uh, in turn to be able to reach out to you or to others and as the instructor? And one, one issue is um, having kind of open communication for the whole class so that if one student asks a relevant question, then you can answer it for, you can answer that student's question. And then everybody gets the benefit of that short, you know, conversation and they can all learn from it. And then, but there's other times when students might not want to, you know, operate that way. And so there's other ways of thinking about like maybe private emails can be good for tracking what the conversation, how the conversation flowed and what's helpful. But that's one of those strategic decisions to make is, is how to manage that. Because if you have a large class and you, you might not be wanting 30 or 40 emails every day, just from students or however many that would be, you know, it might be a lot easier to manage that in some other way when it's reasonable to do so. And like I, you said, I agree. I don't really have all those firm answers to that, but mindfully uh, setting your class up with these kind of things, in place is going to be very helpful in the long run. And of course, there's some hammering it out over time as you improve, but, but that's kind of an important factor, I think. So it's a good question. Something that you brought up, Josh, um, <laughs> kind of uh, stood out to me. Um, 
and I, and I hinted at it earlier when I was talking about, you know, a lone student at their laptop with nothing else to do. Um, actually, lots of other things to do, not in your class, uh, you know, going on Facebook or, you know, mm -hmm. lots of other things. And uh, to be an online student is, is very different um, from being a face-to-face -face student. Face-to-face, -face, as Brady mentioned earlier, we've got all kinds of social supports that are, that are nudging us and, and prompting us to participate and to engage um, online. It's just the student and there, so many of the forces are working against them. Uh, you know, their computers right in front of them. Facebook is right there. They could be napping. They could be doing something else that they want to do. It, it's really, it's a, kind of like being on a down escalator where the student really has to want to engage. And, and that's, that's in a normal online class where it's, it's not uh, especially difficult if the subject matter in your class is, is more difficult or if you're trying to help students think critically and, and even uh, you know, encourage a growing philosophical or critical thinking in your students, that subject matter is even more difficult and it's gonna require even more support and structure to help students practice thinking the way you want them to or practice writing the way you want them to and, or helping them to discover their own perspectives. That's hard enough to do in class and it, it actually, I think, gets harder online. Unless, like Steve said, you're being strategic and thoughtful about how you're designing your, your course. It's a, it's a whole other world to go online. And fortunately, hopefully, this is just a brief little taste that we get uh, with this, with this uh, recent mandate. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It's, and so just kind of stemming from that, I think that uh, the, the patterns of communication are one issue that we're talking about here in terms of just information about the course and the question a student might have about the assignment of the syllabus or something. And then there's also just the more general interaction patterns that you might have for the actual pedagogical aspects of the class. And that's something that, you know, we're kind of hinting at this and coming at this somewhat indirectly. And I'm now maybe trying to thematize this as a very straightforward question that the instructor is going to have to answer for herself or himself with respect to how are we just going to interact with the time that we have together. So if we, we have like, you know, we're gonna to continue to be together for 75 minutes twice a week or something like that. How are we gonna chop up that time? What, what's the best use of that time in light of the media that we have in front of us? And are people gonna get creative, are instructors gonna get creative about trying to have certain kinds of assignments outside of class or flipping things or whatever else, you know, might be rel relevant and interesting to people. Uh, and but those interaction patterns are crucial to sort of circle us back to the question that Brady started with having to do with how much of that natural energy and, and the real positive benefit that comes from those conversations, how much of that are we going to lose or gain from going uh, online? And, you know, I don't know how this works for different people, but some of us in the world of instructional design and technology think that you can actually have a better class online that you would have face to face, at least in certain ways if you develop it correctly over time. And that means you, you have the opportunity now to carefully think about how you wanna create certain kind of learning experiences with media and so on. And you might have teams that could even help you do it depending on how much support you have at your university. And you could try to still maintain some of that interaction in a positive way while supplementing it with other, uh, other pedagogical activities that could enrich in ways that we might not have thought about when we were doing face-to-face -face kinds of things. And once again, I don't have, I don't want to give you like a bullet point of a bunch of lists of, you know, uh, possibilities because I don't actually have those exactly, but these are the kind of things that we're invited to ponder now and to try to bring into our teaching more, so. Yeah, I, 
I, I'm intrigued by what you're saying, Steve, because on the one hand, it seems like the work that you all do in the field of instructional design is really thoughtful about a number of things that we might take for granted and maybe we miss some opportunities on. Um, and so there are some opportunities. And on the other hand, this is maybe this is maybe the worst way of going about it, of stopping us partway through a semester and saying, hurry and change this, this class that you designed in a particular way. Um, that said, it's still an opportunity. Uh, I guess may, maybe one way of framing what I'm thinking about is I, um, I guess I tend to see myself as a little bit more like the improvisational jazz musician in my teaching. You know, that I've got, a, I've got a notion of what key I'm playing in. I know some of the riffs I want to hit, but the ways that we're going to get there really might be different from one performance to the next. My stereotype of distance learning is that it has to be a whole lot more scripted. I wonder if that's a mistaken assumption. Um, if you know, some of these opportunities that maybe I've been missing out on are there, or if I'm thinking about it correctly. Uh, Michael, do you want to say something about that? Sure. Um, we've had this conversation once because our our vice president over online learning used to be a, an opera performer and a, a music teacher. He taught vocal performance. And so he made the comparison once between uh, a live performance face-to-face -face and uh, a recorded performance or a recording of a performance like a, like a movie or something that you watch as, as being a little more like the online experience. And I think you're right, Brady, that it's that it has to be a little more scripted to an extent, uh, like Steve mentioned, those interaction patterns to to bear the right kind of fruit, we really need to to be strategic about those and thoughtful about those in a, and pre-plan them in a way that we don't always what well, we wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to do that in an improvisational setting. Um, but I wouldn't want anyone to think that online means pre-scripted, canned everything and templates everything and no room for <laughs> human interaction. Uh, it just shows up in different places, I would say. Uh, so the example I described earlier, in one of my uh, introductory psychology classes, I had students um, contributing to a document throughout the semester. Uh, every time we took an exam, actually, they were answering a set of questions. And I had them do it in the same document uh, each time just on a new page within the same document because part of the questions were to look back at your answers from last time and see how you've changed. And so we were able to have conversations uh, around that document because it kind of grew with the students. We were able to have conversations that we wouldn't really be able to have in a face-to-face -face conversation because the artifact was right there for us to look at a sample of your past work or how you used to think about this kind of thing. Kind of like keeping a journal. So I would say that you can still have plenty of unique interaction and there was, there was no way for me to, you know, can any statements for the students when I would look at their, their documents, you know, submitted over time that uh, culminated eventually. There's no way for me to templatize that. And we had some, some really interesting conversations there, both face-to-face -face and online actually, um, because the interaction pattern around an artifact was designed to produce a meaningful uh, reflection activity. No, just one thing I'd briefly add uh, to what Michael just said, which I thought was really helpful, is that uh, I think about 
teaching in this respect probably is a little bit like semi-structured interviewing and qualitative research where you have some idea of maybe what you're trying to get out of an interview and maybe you have five or ten or more questions determined in advance or like you know you know sort of a version of a draft of sit out in advance so that you have some sense of direction going forward of what you hope to accomplish but uh, in those kinds of interviews, you know, a lot of those questions never get asked and some of them do or some of them get modified. And sometimes the direction of the interview changes altogether as you see something really interesting emerging in the conversation that you didn't predict and it ends up being more fruitful for, you know, your researcher's purposes, uh, for your purposes as a researcher. And so I, I kind of see almost all of life like that in some senses that we, we can't predict everything, but we do have to kind of have some idea how we're moving forward. And Teaching for me has been that way is it's kind of like a, a mix or a combination of on the one hand trying to have some measure of predictability in the sense that you're, you're hoping certain things are going to happen in some general sense, but being very open to going where the natural energy and where the excitement is in terms of what people are interested in and what will really help learners. And so I, I wouldn't want to come to a class one day and say, okay, guys, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today, so I hope you ask some really great questions. That would make me feel kind of like, you know, why are they paying me to do it? Anybody could do that, right? You, know, you can just pay someone minimum wage out of a high school or something, have them do that. So there's got to be something I bring as a, as a professor and as an instructor that really shows that I have some capability here to, to help design a great class. But on the other hand, having that openness that Brady's talking about and that we're all sensing, I think is super important. And so I kind of see myself coming in kind of half prepared in that respect and then hoping that we'll be able to move it towards something really positive. And if we don't seem to be doing that, then I got to earn my money and start figuring out how am I going to turn this into a positive experience for everybody without being too controlling, you know? So anyway, Brady, you probably have follow up on that, but that's just something that strikes me. Well, I, I guess I just kind of sum up what I think I'm hearing from you is that there are these spaces where things can unfold in unexpected ways, but um, we kind of have to put more care into teeing up those situations maybe be a little bit more deliberate in designing those opportunities and nudging the students in ways that we might be able to accomplish informally in a face-to-face -face setting. This is, might be a good time for me to bring up, as I was thinking about um, these questions over the weekend, uh, an analogy occurred to me that I, I think will hold water, but we can try it out and see if we can break it. Um, uh, the question, often comes up when I work with campus faculty to put their courses online. Is it, is it possible to have a good online class? Is it possible to have a meaningful discussion with students online? And maybe it's because I've been in the online world for so long that I'm a little bit uh, uh, colorful in my response. But um, to, me, to me now, having, having experienced what I've experienced, having put as many courses online as I have and, and seeing what's capable and what's possible in online, to me, it sounds kind of like asking, is it possible to have a meaningful conversation in a language other than English? I, I don't think that's the right kind of question. I think it's just a different language. And you know, when you learn a, a different language, a, a natural place that you gravitate towards is cognates, right? Cognates are the words that are really, really similar in both languages. So I, I learned a little bit of Spanish and the word for cognate in Spanish is cognado. It's a cognate itself. <laughs> and it, it sounds just like it, it looks just like it. And that's kind of the first resort when you're learning a new language. And that's what we see faculty looking at when they look at moving online. What are the cognates? How could we do basically my classroom lecture, synchronous, uh, seeing students' faces online? 
you know, and, and that's not a, a bad place to start, but it's not all there is to, to Spanish. Cognates aren't the only part of Spanish and Spanish has some intricacies and, and nuances that are, that are interesting. The most interesting languages are ones that have, that either don't have words for the concepts you're used to in your native language, or they have other words that sometimes I might feel are like an improvement over <laughs> my own language. Sometimes there are no cognates, but you can still communicate the same meanings and, uh, and concepts uh, just, just using different words and different grammatical structures. So this is the analogy I put out there for us to consider is, is online just a, a different language that we need to learn. A harder language, I think, but a, a different language nonetheless. I think that gives a nice transition to another topic I wanted to make sure we could get to. It just, uh, I think a lot of uh, um, people are assuming that going online means video conferencing and streaming pre-recorded lectures, but not all students are going to have the same access to computing, to the internet. Um, how should we be addressing that issue of just kind of the justice around access? Well, I don't want to keep taking all the turns here, but uh, <laughs> um, this is something that we think about a lot with online. In a lot of ways, it's going to be easier for uh, certain domestic institutions where, you know, that their student body is comprised mostly of students who live in that city, for instance, or in that state. Um, but some universities that have a, a nationwide reach and, and others like the one I work for that try to serve students all over the world, we definitely have to account for varying internet access. Um, we were told a story recently of a student in, I believe it was West Africa, who had a cell phone and he would go into the backyard of his property, he would climb a tree and, and hold out his phone on the, on the limb of the tree until he could find cell service. And then he would leave his phone there, he would go back to his house, into his room, and put his laptop on the windowsill, it was open window, and hotspot to his phone so he could do his homework uh, in his house on his laptop, but getting only the cell service that his phone could get being up in the tree in his backyard. Mm. And that's just, that's just incredible to consider, you know, what kind of conditions we have like that. Uh, that's, that's a major constraint. And that's part of why I say going online is, is a difficult language to learn because you have to be able to serve students like that very well. That's, that's a tough challenge. Yeah, we have, I remember having lots of experience with that issue in when Hurricane Sandy was, you know, this was, I don't know how long ago this was now, probably 10 years or something. It kind of like leveled the infrastructure a little bit in certain areas around where my students live. And, you know, some of them, because they lived in, in areas that were, you know, better protected or where they had more resources to draw on, it wasn't as big a disruption. But some of them, I mean, it just wasn't possible for them to do their work in a normal way. I mean, they they couldn't get internet access, and some, for some of them, that went on for years afterward. They couldn't get reliable internet access, and so, you know, I I had to always be thinking of some alternative. You know, how do I, you know, because I was always in hybrid courses, I never was in a fully online course. There was always the opportunity of printing something out or, you know, you know, doing something face to face. Um, it's harder to think about alternatives. What, what are the alternatives or how do I make alternatives for that student when none of us can be face to face? Uh, 
something that we have to deal with at work, well, something that we're choosing to deal with at work is considering um, a mobile first strategy for how students will access the learning management system, especially across the world and other countries. Uh, students might not have much, but they have a phone with internet and they can access the learning management system on their phone, uh, at least enough to see what the course is expecting of them. They might have to go to an internet cafe or to the library to, to use a computer that's got you know, Microsoft Excel on it, for example. But thinking mobile first is a strategy that we're really trying to adopt. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the things, one of the steps we're taking right now anyway, to try to be uh, able to reach far with our courses. I'd say one of the strategies that I've, I've used over the years is um, trying to be as low tech as I can. Um, and particularly if I use the, you know, when people do web design, for example, they have to try and like make a, a user interface that will work even on ancient like browsers that no one should be using anymore that haven't been supported in generations. And, and so I do a little bit of web development, you know, on the side. And so I, sort of think that way when I think about using digital media with my students, I think, okay, who, how do I do this for my Netscape student? You know, like how do I make something for somebody who's, who's got technology that's just like, you know, ancient? And I find actually that it works better for everyone, not just my Netscape student, but it works better for everyone when I use the most archaic technologies I can. So, you know, it, it leaves off some of the bells and whistles uh, and sometimes I choose to put the bells and whistles on anyway and try to have a fallback of some kind. But the more I can use very old or very old technologies, the more it, it, it creates a kind of access, openness of access to everybody. And do you mean like the most archaic that you can find? Like, are we talking about going back to DOS and, you know, black and green computer screens? <laughs> well, no, I don't go that far back, but I, you know, I'll, I'll rely on email, for, for example, even though a lot of younger students have no interest in using email, it will still make them use it because almost anybody can get access to email as a way of getting and giving information. You know, I mean, I think that question of access is, it's connected to some other, you know, questions that I, we've all been thinking about, which is, you know, what are the politics? Uh, not online specifically, because I think that's that's a bigger question, you know. But more like, the, what are the politics of this moment, where we are all going online, even though we're not ready for it, and none of us plan for it, you know? And how will that fold into the politics of higher education more broadly? How is this move going to change how administrations interact with faculty? How's it going to change how students interact with their universities? How's, how are we going to, to um, acknowledge that political reality and not feed into the kind of neoliberal attitudes that are trying to use online instruction as a way of disenfranchising teachers? I don't know if any of you have any thoughts on how to deal with that kind of politics. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, maybe I can say a couple of things that were briefly that I've been thinking about. One is that I do think this is a pivotal moment in the history of education, at least in areas that are talking about these kinds of things, and it could be all over the world, but this could be make and break for some institutions. The way in which this all goes down could pave the way and grease the skids for a lot more online and digital, at least blended learning kinds of environments for a lot of instructors. 
instructors are opened up to whole new possibilities now that they would not have thought about before unless they were sort of invited into through this whole experience. Could, the same thing could be true with administrators. Some administrators who were really pro-online may have pause now after they saw the way this all went down and things, or the reverse, right? It could go the other way where administrators were digging their heels in and, and so on. And all of a sudden, this could be some kind of way in which we get this push forward technologically and, and attitudinally speaking. And so I'm just fascinated to see how that's going to go. I'm not sure yet, but my guess is that people are going to be uh, able to find out that there are affordances in this new way of teaching these new platforms and so on that are that if you are open to them, you can maybe see how to accelerate your work to bring it forward in new ways that you couldn't do so before. And related to that, I'll just say one more thing and then maybe let some other people here comment. And it is that for me, it's going to, this is going to be a little bit like that old metaphor from Otto Neurath, the German philosopher of science talking about the rebuilding the ship at sea. You know, it's, you, you, you can't take a ship totally apart in the middle of the journey, right? And so you replace a plank by plank here and there. And so we're doing a whole bunch of switching all of a sudden, like Grady said, right? We're switching horses in midstream is another metaphor. But for me, I'm going to have to be continuously uh, trying to improve it as I go. And I, I can't assume that I'm going to get everything right the first week that we switch over, which is basically this week, you know? So I'm going to have to have the student, hope the students are patient and we work together on this and we try to let something great come as a result of these opportunities and, and not, and not see this as just one more step backward down into a falling deeper into a black hole of, of, you know, marketing and, and uh, you know, what would it be like uh, just making merchandise of ourselves or something like that, you know, but we could find ways to really reach out to learners better in some genuine way, but that remains to be seen. So I'll stop there. At the university that I work at right now, we're in within the online organization. We're actually doing a, a pilot right now. Well, not a pilot. The technical word is an experiment, actually, I've been told, because pilots are intended to scale, you see. Anyway, an experiment where they're just curious, they want to try something. So they, they tried um, putting 150 students in this online class instead of the usual 50. Um, a lot of the course content... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better term, is commoditized products. We have videos, they have readings that they're supposed to do. The curriculum is pretty well set. Um, but with this experiment of very high enrolling class, they got TAs to handle the grading. But then because there were so many students, the online instructor was now freed up to spend almost all of their time reaching out to students that were struggling in the course, students that hadn't submitted assignments, that had kind of fallen off the radar. Because the number of students was increased so much, uh, the workload for that kind of, well, I've heard it described as shepherding, um, but you know, the one-on-one -on -one interaction with students, helping them, mentoring them, coaching them, the instructor was freed up to do all of that because the grading was taken care of by a TA with rubrics and written by you know, experts in the field. But I, I was just very fascinated by that, that you know, when we think of online, we think if we're just going to focus on activities and what students are producing, that just turns the online instructor into a grader, unless we change one of the, one of the core assumptions of how many students can you handle, and it changes the kind of relationship that's possible with the students and where the instructor ends up spending their time. Anyway, like I said, this is an experiment at our university, something that uh, we're just curious about, but it, it was an interesting um, constraint to change. Uh, the number of students and, and the usual role of 
of the teacher. Now there's probably going to be some uh, positives and negatives come out of that experiment, but uh, interesting. I never would have thought of, of trying that particular experiment. And I think that's, that may be a valuable way of thinking about change, which constraints you change. I think the kind of constraint that I find myself most worried about is changing how much administrators think they need to rely on faculty members to, you know, teach students. I've, I've had experiences before in my own institution where the, the people who were um, managing the online instruction, they were really pushing for faculty to produce materials that the university would then own and market as ways, as part of like online programs. Faculty, understandably, did everything they could to shoot that down because they understood what that really meant, which was, you know, disenfranchising faculty. Right? They, they wanted to create these kind of very well-designed and very self-managing course systems so that you could have either fewer faculty, no faculty, less qualified faculty. So, you know, I think our, our union, which is a very strong union, was not pleased at all with that kind of policy. And I, and I think for good reason. I think in many situations, you find administrators trying to limit the power of faculty, limit the, the degree to which faculty have control over a curriculum and so on. And I think we have to be careful in this moment uh, to not let this become a wedge that will separate faculty from their own expertise and instruction. Yeah, I imagine a lot of faculty right now aren't even thinking about like copyright issues and that sort of thing for materials they're producing, videos they're making and that sort of thing. But it's probably worth at least thinking twice about. Yeah, it really is. This raises a really interesting ethical question and uh, also kind of debate and tension. And uh, let's see, there is, this, there is this concept of a guild ethic that maybe you or others have heard about in which, you know, can be quite, quite interestingly problematic. And some could look at professors protecting their turf in the classroom as a form of guild ethic, where even if technology in the world is moving on, we're gonna desperately work toward protecting our own interests and feathering our own nest and keeping this sort of lock on instruction so that you know, we're the ones who are at the center and making all the, you know, we're shaping the minds of the generations and we're getting paid handsomely to do it or whatever else, something like that, which is one kind of criticism of what's going on here, right? That, you know, hey, look, the world is changing and it's just not that way anymore and you're gonna to have to just figure it out. Uh, but that has to be balanced against some other notion of, is this what institutions of higher education are going to be doing now, which is exploiting faculty to sort of extract, extrapolate out from them all the wisdom or all the knowledge or all the good that they can give to students and somehow try to uh, capture it, codify it, record it so that we can then make very large amounts of money on their backs and they get very little of anything for it and render themselves obsolete at the same time, right? And so you can see there's this very fascinating tension that could emerge as a important point of conversation in the future that would take quite a bit of thought to work out, I think. And there's got to be good solutions to that. But it's an interesting direction to be thinking about heading it. How do we cope with that? So when I think that question and the way you phrase it, Steve, connects us to I think where Brady started, which is, you know, what 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 elements of instruction are really connected to that relational mm -hmm. uh, aspect of teaching, you know, that 
ways that we interact with each other, the ways that we talk. But, you know, Brady used this metaphor of the improvisational jazz musician, right? I mean, how could you extract from that musician what makes them great at what they do and somehow separate it from them and then make it available to other people? I don't think you could. And I think that there's an argument to be made that that's true of teaching too, that really good teachers, you can't, you can't like extract it from them. Once that teacher is not there, the teaching isn't either. And I think that that's a really important question as we make this move towards distance learning. You know, how, how much does the teaching and the quality of the teaching depend on the teacher? And if we think it does, which I think that to some degree it does, then, then what can we do to maintain as much of that kind of relational competence, if you want, for lack of a better word, in a distance format. Mm -hmm. That's the question. Yeah, maybe that's a great place for us to leave some reflection um, as we're about out of time here. But want to thank you all for joining us today and for um, for your great insights. Thank so, you, Brady. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.